Welcome to the ETM Macro Podcast in conjunction with the Center for Risk Analysis. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Franz Cronier, CEO of the South African Institute of Race Relations and the Center for Risk Analysis. I am Russell Lamberti from ETM Macro Advisors. Franz, welcome. Very good to have you with me. Uh, Russell, good day to you. It's uh, good to be here. We are macro specialists. You guys obviously look at the economy, but you slant uh, more towards being political analysts and, and scenario planners. How are you reading the political situation in South Africa as we are pretty much in the middle of lockdown? We've, we've had an extension to lockdown. When I spoke to you offline a, a few uh, days ago, you mentioned that there was still a lot of fear in the sort of presidential advisory circles and that the predominant narrative was one of coronavirus fear rather than macroeconomic fear. What, what's your read on the on the sort of presidential headspace at the moment, if you've had any kind of insight into that front? There's, um, there's a great deal to say. So let me try and do it in an ordered manner. The first thing always is, is to understand the context, which I think very few analysts have in their possession because it's so expensive to produce it by doing the hard yards of years of background socio-economic and political research, uh, getting access to people and then doing polling, which are really the three ingredients. Now, the context is this, that support for the African National Congress hinges above all else on the material circumstances of people in the country. The idea of liberation, loyalty, voting, and so on is largely nonsense. It exists only where the person who demonstrates such loyalty has, uh, ahead of that, uh, seen an improvement in their standard of living. As soon as that changes, ANC voters actually become quite pragmatic in the political decisions they take. So now you add, add the COVID pandemic on top of this, and um, the effect of that, uh, just, just from the data and, and trend side, which is really where you must take a lot of your guidance from in this kind of analysis is that in the medium to longer term, COVID is a big net negative for the government and for the ANC. So that's the first point. And um, put plainly, well, what am I saying? I say that COVID might be the thing, the economic consequences of COVID, that could uh, see the ANC lose its majority before the end of this decade. It's, it's the final step in that process. So that's that's the first point I want to make to you. Is lockdown then a massive miscalculation by the Ramaphosa administration and, and the and the ANC? Look, social distancing is very important, we think. We think this is that this isn't the septicemic plague, but it is a dangerous virus. Um making sure that, that older people are, are not unnecessarily exposed to the virus, super important as well. All, all of that is good and right and sensible and should be done, and it's something we, we advocate for uh, to be done. However, to shut down your entire economy when you have practically zero stimulus capacity and you entered COVID, lest we forget, from a position in which in February the finance minister suggested a deficit of 6.8% against a growth rate of 0.9%, which is a weaker position than many countries will exit COVID is 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 madness it, it's madness and uh, yeah. what should have been done from the very start certainly what should have been done once the first two-week period expired let's say 
the policymakers are under pressure. They didn't know what was coming. They feared the curve. So they, they went a bit overboard in the first two weeks. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to do, to be in the position that Mr. Ramaphosa and his cabinet was, had to take those decisions. But certainly by the time the first two weeks expired, what should have been done is this, a simple thing. You do away with this distinction between essential and other businesses. It's, it's a distinction that can really only arise in the mind of a person who has a, a, a deeply ideological view of how the private sector and economies operate. Our, our view, I think a more sensible view, is that the fact that a business operates demonstrates that it is essential to its staff, to its clients, the service that it produces, etc. Now, a problem there immediately is that if, if you look across the sort of parliamentary benches, how many members of parliament have ever run a commercial enterprise in a competitive environment and seen that enterprise be successful? And the numbers were practically zero, even on the opposition benches. What should have been done is instead of this distinction between essential and other enterprises, a, 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 another distinction should have been drawn. And that, that distinction should be between enterprises that can operate uh, safely within sensible uh, uh, isolation protocols without posing a grave threat to public health. Where an enterprise would concentrate uh, vast numbers of people in close proximity to each other, unavoidably so, for long periods of time, such enterprises should be considered on a case-by-case and sector-by-sector basis. But anything else should be allowed to open and operate freely within sensible isolation protocols. Um, and and that, that, that's the position that should have been taken. The, the blanket lockdown, the militaristic nature of it, e- even the name of the, of the body that makes such decisions, this command council, uh, gives you, I think, a particularly useful insight into the mindset of the people that are driving these decisions. And, and, and a further insight is the pettiness of it all, I I read in a newspaper of a, a poor woman somewhere in Cape Town tried to walk her dog and, and was surrounded by police vehicles who arrested her uh, entirely alone, walking safely down the street, isolated from everyone else. It gives, you, it gives you a sense of the madness of the idea. So intelligent isolation, 100%, but what is being done now is, is and the manner in which it's being enforced is destructive. And I think the economic consequences here will be um, ferocious, is is probably the word. And the political implications of that for the ANC, I think, will be very, very serious. So, France, if if the first two weeks of lockdown were based on, uh, to your point, a kind of rational fear, or or at the very least, a, a grave sense of foreboding and not knowing what what these risks entailed, and therefore, um, the government went for this kind of precautionary principle lockdown. If if that's the logic of of say the first week or two of of, of lockdown, what has that logic graduated into? Do you think? Do you think it's still based on on the acute fears, or do you think this has taken on a more dirigiste sort of power grab? I mean, I mean, where, where do you see the headspace of of the decision makers at this point? Right. Now now we get to the crux of the thing, because perhaps arising in your mind or perhaps arising in, in, in your listeners' minds is, is the idea of a contradiction. If it is true that, that 
weak economic performance harms the ANC and that the lockdown is going to trigger particularly weak performance and that the ANC knows this, then why is it persisting with the lockdown? It, it seems so obvious. Yeah, important question. Exactly. This is the crux. This is the crux. This is the watershed question between people who get South Africa and understand where it's headed and those who, who, who have very difficult lives in that at, at every juncture, they are continually surprised by the decisions that are taken. Now, the contradiction that, that, I, that, that, that arises around COVID, um, you might concede, is, is, is in fact no different to the contradiction that's arisen around a lot of ANC policy for the past 10 years and has certainly arisen around ANC policy in the era of Mr. Ramaphosa, where on the one hand I tell you the ANC appreciates the relationship between uh, material circumstances of people and its own performance, but on the other hand, uh, three years are spent, uh, squandered in the reform window, uh, pushing the idea of expropriation as just one example that cannot possibly surely ever at all in any way help to bring about the improved economic performance that the ANC needs to survive. And, and how does the CRA resolve that uh, conundrum? We resolve it with, with two related points. One is the nature of politics, and second is the importance of ideology. And neither of those points have ever been sufficiently well understood in, in my experience now of many years, and my predecessor's experience has never been properly understood by South Africa's business leaders. I, I've come to think, Russell, that the problem for many of business leaders is that they are successful. And they, they are successful. They will, if they exist, they have to be successful. And they are successful because if they anticipate a, a problem, a threat to their business, they will act to address that threat. And therefore, they remain successful. Those that don't go under. But they make a strategic mistake in assuming that politics works along the same lines and that if a group of politicians anticipate a threat to their future, they will act in a manner uh, to mitigate uh, that threat and make sure that it goes away. And that, history will show you, is in fact not the case uh, at all. Related to that, and the reason for it, is ideology and the grip that ideology has on politicians and policymakers, not just in this country, but around the world. And in the, the, the case of the ANC itself, I think the way that we've put it best is that the party, even in its present guise, is imprisoned in an ideological cage of its own making. And that cage really has its, has, has, has its origins in an internal battle of the soul of the ANC that's raged in that party for uh, well over 100 years. And ideology has a uh, – policies are the reflection of the dominant ideas in a society. And the dominant ideas are informed by the ideologies of the leaders and policymakers in that society. And it follows, therefore, quite logically that if ideology has a particularly sound grip, a firm grip on a, a government or a political party or a ruling alliance, as in the case of South Africa, that that will uh, inform policy, even where that policy at times appears to contradict, sometimes quite obviously, the long-term strategic interests of the party itself and that government. And it is, it is where that ideology overrides pragmatic considerations that governments are removed from power. 
uh, hence my conclusion on 2024 for you. And when business leaders tell me they don't understand the ANC, they don't understand its policies, why? Why does it seem to, why is there this dissonance, there these moments when, when you get these panicked appeals to growth and investment? And, and, and this term, and so an overuse of the ticking time bomb of unemployment. But the very same cabinet minister will, at the moment of holding that opinion, correct the fear of unemployment. I've, I've seen, I've looked into their eyes, Russell, I've, I've seen it in meetings, real fears about structural unemployment. Why will that same political leader then, in that same moment, continue to advocate for policies that can have no result other than to worsen the unemployment position in the country? And the answer is the grip of ideology on, on a movement or a party. And that explains the dissonance in, 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 in a lot of the policymaking of the ANC pre-COVID. And it is that same analytical framework that you must use to understand the dissonance in policymaking during COVID and the dissonance that's going to follow after COVID. And once you've asked me your question, I want to make a third broader point that, that will really complete uh, my my analysis for you. Okay, excellent. So, so France, hold on to that third point. I just wanted to come in and say that what what I've started to conceive of through this corona crisis is that rather than changing trends necessarily, rather than flipping the world on its head, it seems to me to be taking the shape more of an accelerator crisis. It seems to be accelerating whatever trends were in place. If that's true, then the hopes for, for this becoming a catalyst for, say, IMF-instigated reform are maybe false hopes, and instead we get more of an acceleration towards a national democratic revolution-type outcome. Is that yeah. Does that hold water for you? Are we, are we seeing really that this is now acting as a catalyst as an, and an accelerator for existing ANC trajectories? You open the door to my third point. Let me just set this out again for you. My first point is a simple one. There's the long-term standing of the ANC depends on the performance of South Africa's economy, point one. Point two is for reasons of ideology, the ANC must be expected to act at times in a manner that undermines the performance of the South African economy. The third point, the one you introduce, is the balance of power within the ANC and its, and its various factions. And once I've completed that point, I think I have, I, I have put the puzzle together as, as well as I could. When Cyril Ramaphosa won and defeated Zuma, as the media reported it at Nazrek now about three years ago, his margin of victory was so narrow that had 90 people voted differently out of more than 4,700 delegates, he would have lost. And Dr. Dlamini Zuma would now be spearheading our response to COVID. So was it a, was it a, great, a great victory, a great a turn? I don't, think it, I don't think it was. I think, I think Nazrek was a stalemate within the ANC. And the stalemate was between two factions, neither of which Mr. Ramaphosa actually deeply, truly belongs to. The first faction was the, the, the state capture uh, elements that had grown around uh, Mr. Zuma and his uh, leadership coup in 2007. The second faction 
were the resurgent left of the ANC that uh, uh, acted with that first faction, even though they, they, they loathe each other. These are, these are sworn enemies, but they worked together to remove Mr. Mbeki. And these two factions fought each other to a standstill at Nazareth. And Mr. Ramaphosa was elected as their leader, statistically, really by accident. And the edge he got was the brilliant term of state capture crafted by the relative left in order to focus public rage and anger on the state capture faction, when much of the reason why the economy had performed so badly through the Zuma decade was, was, ide- was ideological. And, and that never got into the mainstream, and the state capture became the dominant narrative. We were growing very slowly because the Guptas had stolen the money. And if we could arrest the Guptas, the economy would recover. That, that was the state capture narrative, and it played brilliantly, even though it, it's, it's obviously incomplete. So these factions fight themselves to a standstill, and Mr. Ramaphosa becomes their leader. He doesn't comfortably fit into either uh, category. The assumption became in, uh, carried by the manner, the tenor of media reporting, and certainly the view in business as I experienced it, was that Mr. Ramaphosa had won at the head of a reformist movement in the ANC itself. And the inference was that this reformist movement was the essence of what Mandela had started in 92 at Davos and what Mbeki had taken on uh, through gear before his untimely end. But that's wrong, because over the Zuma decade, what reformist element there had been, what pragmatic element there had been, as much as it also suffered from internal contradictions, had, uh, the way we describe it, been crushed between the two primary factions in the ANC today. On the one hand, the, 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 the remnants of the state capture infrastructure, and on the other hand, the resurgent ideological left. Now, with, within that analysis, you have Mr. Ramaphosa, who, who vacillates a bit between the two, and uh, has underneath him a finance minister who, who for, for most of the hours of the day, many of the hours of the day, is, is able to appreciate some pragmatism, the uh, position the economy finds itself in. But how do these, but, but they are a minority, these reformers, a small minority of the ruling alliance. Uh, you saw that last week or, or the week before when the secretaries of the SACP, Kasatu and the ANC jointly released a statement damning Mboeni for broaching the topic of IMF support. They are not the dominant faction. They are in a weak position, holed up in corners of the union buildings, but not dominant in the parliamentary uh, caucus of the ANC and very far from dominant within Latuli House and not at all dominant within the broader alliance partnership. The, these, this, the small band of, of reform, people who are capable of reform-minded thinking at times. Now, what do the two dominant factions do during COVID? Well, the first lot, let's say they're the state capture remnants, they see in COVID a great opportunity because they, they are worried about what might one day happen if South Africa is well-governed and the economy grows, that they might be arrested, they might be prosecuted, they could go to jail, their patronage networks would collapse. So they act, and you see them really in the security cluster, seeking to use public fear around COVID to set a constitutional and civil rights precedents that may not be entirely unwound once the crisis has abated. 
Uh, so, for example, if you speak in a manner that is deemed to be uh, uh, disseminate false news about the pandemic, uh, you, you can now be arrested. And, and some idiotic chap in Cape Town who said that if you get tested for COVID, you'll get the disease, gets arrested. And, the, and everyone thinks, well, that's fine because he's an idiotic chap. But, but, but no one sees the precedent being established. So the State Capture Brigade will try and use the COVID crisis and the public's fear of COVID to set precedents that they can later rely on in order to buttress their position and work towards, in practice, an outcome where if a serious political or a, a media or related challenge to the ANC materializes, the precedent set might be used to undermine that challenge. Be very careful of this. The second lot, the, the more ideological factions uh, of the ANC seek to use the COVID crisis to set precedents on economic and other policy that might not be unwound, unwound. They see it as a great opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right. You can introduce price controls, for example. And given COVID and public fear and, and, and the manner in which price gouging is, is presented in the media, uh, for the time being, a lot of people will go along with price controls on basic foodstuffs because they say, well, it protects the poor. It's a terribly dangerous precedent, however. So these precedents begin to be set by the ideologues. And that's the third part of, of my analysis for you, that within the COVID crisis, the ideologues who don't entirely trust Mr. Ramaphosa say, well, this is our moment to set precedents on policy that, we, that will be difficult to unwind after the fact. And there's nothing Mr. Ramaphosa can do about this now. The securocrats say, well, let's set precedents on civil rights that can't be eroded until after the crisis. And both of them, somewhere, both factions are somewhere in their minds, will have in sight the likelihood that Mr. Ramaphosa is not going to run the place forever. And that we, we want to position in such a way that when his time inevitably comes to an end, our faction can become the dominant faction within the ruling party. For that reason, the thesis that, well, the, the economic consequences of COVID will be so serious that finally the government will be forced to reform is, is uh, undermined uh, somewhat by the fact that in the internal power balances of the ANC and its movement around it, real reformers play a relatively minor role and exert relatively little political influence uh, compared to the state capture faction and the, and the faction that sits more strongly on the ideological left. Franz, you've given an incredibly good synopsis there of not only the situation we find ourselves in, but I suppose how it can go wrong. As a scenario planner, in the, in the framework of what you've just painted, how can it go right over the next few months and years? It's very easy, Russell. It can definitely go right. It goes right like this. And again, you know, just get away from the present. Understand the context and theory about how countries change. Countries only change at points of crisis, as societies. They don't change in the still periods between crises. So crises are a good thing and a useful thing. The direction the society follows after the crisis will, without exception, be determined by the group that had the greatest influence on public opinion at the moment of the crisis itself. But my fear is that far too little is done or understood 
about the importance of shaping the climate of ideas and opinion within the country to make that a realistic prospect. Change that. And I will tell my corporate clients in the briefings I do for them that there is good reason to believe that uh, within the next decade, South Africa will be ranked as one of the most exciting emerging markets anywhere in the world. As we bring this to a close, I have one final conundrum for you to try and unravel for us. And that is the seemingly very easy acquiescence by corporate South Africa to these draconian lockdowns that have essentially decimated revenues. Why do you think corporate South Africa, large corporate South Africa, has rolled over so easily to the presidential demands for lockdown? I mean, there's some great corporates and and some some really good um, corporate CEOs out there who who I think have have their eyes wide open. But I, I would say, with respect to the people who know who they are, rather the exceptions, uh, they they know who they are. That the caliber of strategic thinking in organised business in South Africa is not what it should be if organized business is going to play a constructive role in, in, in not just helping South Africa to hobble along, but to become that very exciting emerging market that the country could be. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one is, is long-term thinking isn't present uh, to the extent that it should be. And I think there's, there's a political fear of, of being seen to be on the wrong side of official opinion. Uh, and I think there has been, since Tony Treyer was attacked by Thabo Mbeki, those very many years ago, uh, for answering the question of a journalist to agree that there was political risk in South Africa, I, I think one of the, um, well, something that lurks under the surface is that business in South Africa is very afraid of the ANC. Because at a certain level, I think what that reveals is at a certain level, business leaders, even those who who would in public say what confidence they have in the ANC, have serious doubts. And I think those same business leaders appreciate the influence of the corrupt and of the ideologues on that party. And for that reason, consider that it is much safer to try and stay on board than to poke the bear as it were, given that the elements of the bear that are ideological and state capture oriented might act in a manner, a reckless manner, to, to, to lay waste to much of uh, the corporate sector if they feel threatened. Russell, you don't get in, in any other society so often so many corporate executives saying how confident they are in the government of that society when the track record of that government and its continued performance and its policies deliver rates of economic growth that are certainly over the past several years here, a fraction, about 20% of the averages recorded by emerging markets in the rest of the world. And I I think it's in that very expression of confidence, what is revealed is the actual deep lack of confidence and the horrible, the horrific realization, I think, unspoken, unsaid, that the ANC is not a reformist movement in the main. And uh, that if we do not uh, treat it with kid gloves, uh, it may bite us in a manner that we might not in the long term survive. Of course, that is a very short-term strategy because 
should that be true and you don't act to change that and shape public opinion so that something better might grow within or out of the ANC. It's only a question of time before you will be bitten regardless. Franz, final question. Lockdown is a key risk vector at this time. And every day of lockdown costs us as a country huge amounts of money. And it worsens the overall macroeconomic and, and therefore social and even health trajectory of the country. Has the CRA gamed out a lockdown roadmap? Do we come out of lockdown on the 30th of April? And how do we, how, how in, your, in your mind, do we emerge from lockdown? Is it, is it flick the switch and turn the economy back on? Or do you think we get settled with quite substantial restrictions through the course of May and, and June and into the deep winter? My, my, my read is that it's, it's easy. It's actually easy. You will get exactly what you've had over the last three or four years. You, you will get an attempt to move in a series of mutually impossible directions at exactly the same time. There will be some steps to tighten controls, even as other steps are made to release controls. There will be a significant degree of overconfidence in the ability of the state to direct economic activity. There will be a complete overconfidence in the stimulus capacity of, of, of the country uh, to help uh, those people who who's become distressed uh, from an income or business perspective. Uh, you will have you will have moments of clarity when the minister will write to the business practitioners, the rescue practitioners at SAA and say, sorry, chaps, it is over. We cannot give you one more cent. And you'll say, aha, there it is. And, and you know, Russell, within an hour, you will get a second statement emerging from another corner of the administration saying yeah. we must do everything possible to save SAA. So I think you'll see confusion. I think you'll see uh, haphazard, uh, staggered actions. The, the, a very good, make it practical. The, the, the taxi industry faces significant restrictions. Then it faces practically no restrictions. An afternoon later, it, it, it faces half the restrictions of before. Uh, an, an, attempt, an attempt will be made to seek an impossible consensus between a strict lockdown and an opening up uh, at, at the same moment. Uh, so, I mean, if, 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 if you don't understand what I'm telling you, I've done a very good job because you, it, it, will be, it will be exactly your experience. You know, there was an evening last year when announcement, when the government announced its intention to proceed aggressively with expropriation and to raise a sovereign wealth fund. The announcements were made on the same evening as, as each other. And, and many of my clients would, would say, well, which one is it? You know, do you want investment or would you want expropriation? And, and I said to them, exactly, that's it. Both are wanted at the same point, two mutually annihilating ideas pursued with equal vigor in the face of the impossibility of achieving both at once. So I think you'll you'll see some sort of relaxation on, on COVID itself. Um, we are entering our winter. Uh, we know that between about a five and ten degrees Celsius, uh, this virus might be at its most virulent. We uh, we do know that. Uh, we know that densely packed communities can't be effectively isolated. We know that there's a serious risk of infections accelerating through those communities. 
We know that our healthcare infrastructure, just on a macro level, going into COVID, is a fraction of what was available to uh, Spain, Italy, the United States. So an accelerated infection curve in South Africa will, by nature, have a lot less medical expertise to throw at people who fall ill than has been the case for other countries that have got into trouble. So they, we, we, we do face a viral, a serious viral risks. Now, Anthony Fauci, who advises the White House on the American response to the pandemic, he's also said that in his career, he has not seen high-end pandemic mortality estimates realized. And if, if you then read Fauci, who seems to be a sensible, uh, pragmatic person, it gives you a sense of perspective of, of the, the, the mortality implications of this virus spreading through a society. And I think it's wrong to say this virus is the flu. It's not. It's much more dangerous. And you should go to great lengths to prevent being infected, both for yourself and that you don't infect a vulnerable immune-compromised and older people around you. But this is not the septicemic plague, and we can be grateful for that. And politicians might pretend there are no payoffs and the media might pretend there are no payoffs and you get the silly stuff even written in the business press that now we must focus on lives and not on markets when, when the interface between the two is so complex that you can't hardly unscramble the one from the other. But when you, you develop, when you get that context that I've tried to create for you on, on the dangers of COVID, you must weigh that against the, the costs uh, your, the, the, the number of, of, of years of life that you will remove from a society by acting in an ill-advised manner could be far worse than, than, than what the virus alone might do to a society. And uh, when you weigh that up, uh, you realize that in the case like South Africa, which, which has gone into COVID in such a weak state, the, the balance should rest in favor of doing everything possible to reopen those elements of the economy, that those sectors, those businesses that can operate without posing a grave threat to public health. And that would be the logical thing to do. And that's the thing that a reasonable person would expect of Mr. Ramaphosa and his cabinet and its command council. But when you factor in the ideological, uh, when you factor in on top of the ideological, the factions that fight each other for their very survival, within that movement, you realize that the pragmatic and the logical are not necessarily the decisions that are going to be taken, as was demonstrated on the extension of the lockdown, uh, the draconian lockdown, uh, uh, where, when that was extended roughly a week ago. And my advice to you would be to expect that a similar, a slightly confused, internally contradictory, uh, even at moments, as was with taxis, shambolic exercise might be followed for a quite a considerable period of time, really into the South African spring and summer. Franz Cronier, it's been wonderful to get your breadth of insight and also to understand how you are thinking about the political framework in South Africa through these incredibly difficult times. Uh, all the best, much health and happiness to you and your family over this uh, lockdown period and beyond. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Same to you, Russell. Thank you very much.